Hi, welcome to Mobile Interactions Now, the podcast where industry pros share firsthand experiences on making mobile interactions work. I'm Kevin, and I'm part of the team here at Tintech. On today's episode, Gene is joined by Mike Burroughs. Mike is the author of Agenda Shift, Outcome-Oriented Change and Continuous Transformation, and also a co-founder of Agenda Shift Academy. Anders talked with Gene about how businesses can use agile and related methodologies to achieve meaningful outcomes from their digital initiatives. Take it away, Gene. Mike, welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to have you on the show and discuss how to leverage agile concepts and, and tools to transform customer experience and, and bring more business outcome. And so to get us started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you've been doing lately? Um, great to be here. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I'm the founder of Agenda Shift and the co-founder of the Agenda Shift Academy. And I'm you know, perhaps best known for my books, Kanban from the Inside, uh, already uh, well, six years old now, a lean agile, seven years old now, a lean agile classic. Then Agenda Shift came in 2018 and the second edition of that uh, earlier this year. And also right to left, the Digital Leader's Guide to Lean and Agile. What we do, it's a big exercise in engagement and in meaningfulness. You know, making sure people understand what, you know, outcomes they are pursuing, uh, outcomes articulated in their own word, words, the result of really productive conversations happening in the organization, all the things that need to happen, you know, before, during and after, you know, anything significant happens, you know, business initiatives, change initiatives, product ideas, services, all, all that kind of stuff. And we're trying to get away from the idea of agile being just you know a process that's imposed you know that's that's a dysfunction and that's unfortunately a dysfunction that a large part of the agile community has fallen into and if you're familiar with the manifesto you know it's very ironic people and interactions over processes and tools is you know one of the first lines of the of the manifesto you know and yet we've become about you know rolling out process and we can do a lot better than that we need to do a lot better than that and that is what agenda shift is all about and that's really exciting because uh, I was particularly intrigued by how you're looking at as I, it seems like, a, you know, I'll, I'll just call it as I plus in a way that it start getting into the engagement with the stakeholders that's needed and all those things, which is really, I believe is a timely topic right now because of the situation that the world is living in right now, yeah. where, where a lot of digital initiatives are getting a lot of uh, pressure to deploy quicker. And, and it, it does take a lot of collaborations and in and, and, and completely new way. And so I, I think it's a really timely topic. When you say agile, what you really mean by it, because it has a lot of history by now. So I, yes. I just want to quickly, you know, uh, make sure we are on the same page and, and some of the you know, evolution, the changes that you are seeing there. Well, there's, there's a few words around there, agile, agility, so on. Whenever I write agile with a capital A, it's always obvious in the context um, and often explicit in the context that we can trace it back to the Agile Manifesto. So, you know, 2001, you know, it's a convergence of things like Scrum and XP and various other things and a manifesto that, that really has made a difference. And, you know, I will always, you know, give, give that event, you know, a huge amount of credit for, you know, for achieving something world changing. Agile for a lot of people is coming becoming something a bit different. You know, it's it's agile process. 
Uh, and, I, and I think that's actually a problem. It's perhaps inevitable when when something goes mainstream that the you know the principles that underpin it you know get spread very thin. People forgot you know forget why we do, why we're doing what we're doing, and people begin to resent the imposition of it as well. You know if you're going to if you if your your goal for your organisation is to have an organisation that that's innovative, collaborative, and and so on, then your means for changing the organisation need to be the same. You know you need to engage people, you need to involve people. They need to collaborate. They need to identify the right problems to solve. They need the opportunity to come up with some solutions that are really going to work fantastically for them. And the old sort of change management industry, you know, the idea of starting with big solutions, big frameworks, big big whatever, and rolling them rolling them out is just totally the wrong approach. It's backwards. Uh, and they should start taking resistance to change, not as something to overcome, but as a sign that they're doing it wrong. And, you know, with a gender shift, it's we start with authentic agreement on meaningful outcomes. And, you know, that's the re- results of the kind of conversations that you need to be having if you're trying to do anything significant, anything that changes the way people work, anything that changes the relationship between staff and the organisation or the organisation with its customers and, and so on. And that covers... You know, transformation work, it covers improvement work, it covers, you know, even product development work as well. And and, uh, there's a really nice interchange between those different spaces. And I think sometimes a success can get messy and, yes. and, and it's, it's really coming out of product based, more, you know, SaaS companies and that kind of a way of working is gaining business attention because it, it's working and the world to me is getting even uh, richer. I think business teams who are not used to completely um, uh, work with, within that kind of a, a team methodology um, are really getting into it now. And it's, it's more a company-wide agenda at, at this point. Yes. But I am one of those people who are having certain problems not working fast enough. Looking at a lot of cases where there's a huge initiative that impacts most people in the company, sort of like, hey, we have a special situation now, digital initiatives needs to get going faster. And the things that we've been doing with our customers, basically manual plus kind of way, how do we make this self-service enabled or things in that nature? So I, I, I love you to just think about it, the agile that came out of it. Now it's being used with a broader user set yeah. and, and asked to solve probably even different types of problems. So how, how should be looking at it now versus yeah. what it was before? Well, it's interesting you mentioned self-service because I was delivery manager for two of the UK government digital exemplar projects. These were flagship projects to demonstrate you know, new agile ways of working in government. And just think about the problem we're solving. And uh, you know, government and digital, those words don't go together very comfortably for most people. You know, we all know what government is like, and we know what government IT projects are like, you know, and that's how digital used to be done in the UK. You know, um, you spend a lot of money coming up with a design for a, a system. Um, you, you, you maybe pay another supplier to build the system. They then chuck it over the fence to maybe a third supplier who's going to support the system uh, when the thing goes live. And when it does, everybody hates it. You know, what, a, what a stupid way of, of, of developing software, developing products of any kind. Back in the David Cameron days, the government said, you know, enough is enough. You know, we need to, we need to change this. And they, they came up with a very, you know, actually brilliant strategy. And principle number one was start with needs. 
And it really was strategy. They were really serious about starting with needs. If you couldn't prove that you were serious about understanding user needs uh, and that you're going to keep on top of understanding user needs as users evolve, as systems evolve, as government policy evolves, as society evolves, and so on and so on, and evolve your services to suit, have a have a you know, have the commitment to keep evolving your services to suit your better understanding of user needs, then you risk. That, that your project being stopped. They were really, really serious about it. So this is you know, kind of, again, it's turning the whole process around. Instead of, sort of starting with the requirements back and building things and releasing things and so on, you start with, well, what need is it that we're trying to solve? And what would it look like when we solve that problem? And how can we most quickly demonstrate that we get it? You know, how can we test these ideas with potential users? How can we actually roll something out that we can test with real, real users and develop the kernel, kernel of a system that perhaps is you know, just in beta to start with, but you know, as quickly as you possibly can is the beginning of a new live system. And then the system grows around it. And you said things, things are messy. Well, yes, they are. The world is messy. The needs that we're responding to is messy. You know, there's a saying, it's Gaul's law, you know, any, any complex system that works, you know, evolved from a simple, simpler system that worked. Specifying hugely complicated systems and rolling them out is actually a recipe for pain and disaster and also for disappointment. I and mean, the chances are you've not really understood your users properly. Um, and only by interacting with them can you hope to do that. So we need to start thinking backwards. This is, you know, this is the, the title of right to left, is thinking backwards from needs met, outcomes realized, learning captured. And focus on that and work backwards, you know, work back through the, you know, the technology of being able to deploy quickly, work through the, you know, the team dynamics and the tooling um, and the practice and the process you know, around the development process. You've got to have ways to organize the work that we you know, are planning on doing soon, you know, things like user story mapping, jobs to be done, those, those kinds of things. And there needs to be some strategy to, behind it all. You know, we need to be clear about what we're trying to achieve, clear about the constraints that we're operating under, clear about the most significant obstacles that we need to, need to overcome, clear about the sources of uncertainty, clear about the commitments that we're going to need to be able to make and so on. You know, with any of those elements missing, then you're set up for failure. And, you know, great, great organizations, great product teams, and when I say product team, I mean the whole thing, not just, you know, the product specialists, um, you know, the product owners, product managers, um, but the whole thing. And it's been a privilege for me through, actually several times in my career, but those government projects were great examples of it to see all those elements in place. And it's exciting, motivating, working towards clear goals. You know, we had the right people in our teams with all the necessary skills. We evolved our process as we went along. You know, our Scrum-based process was actually very, very suitable to the early parts of the project, but it evolved into a more sort of end-to-end flow-based process as, as the system and the process begin, begins to mature.
That's another. I have never worked with the British government, and my enterprise space sometimes a little complicated enough. But yes. but I do believe when it becomes involving governmental bureaucracy and those teams, and and I think it it, it gets really bigger. And part of that's good news, there of course. You know, if government can do it, anybody can do it. You know, if the see, most that, so if that, the most bureaucratic that. if the most bureaucratic and top down organizations in the world, which governments are, you know, can do something as exciting as this then there's no excuse for, you know, for commercial organizations. So now I have to bring you back to reality, some of the uh, uh, day-to-day business I'm living with, because we're really having this conversation where this topic is becoming relevant for companies of all sizes. So when you are dealing with limited resource some of the uh, uh, skill base and some of the uh, traditional domains that give you input as, as necessary. But when the problems that any of these projects have to deal with sometimes are similar in its complexity. And i give you an example why. Uh, the other day, uh, you know, I was talking with consultants who are working on uh, enabling self-service for insurance claims processing. And part of the difficulty is once, once you know, everybody's on board, you know, providing great self-service, a customer experience, everybody can agree to it, right? And all of a sudden you start taking it to the communication interface that the customers prefer, which happens to be like a chat app, in this case, WhatsApp on a, on a mobile phone and the entire experience changes. And then, you know, the problem finds another stakeholder in, in pricing department who has, yeah. you know, who has to get involved, all those things. So but the thing is, time is something that we don't have enough sometimes and, yes. and, and or it's just a mindset that if you start engaging these people at that stage as needed, it, it's taking a lot. It's becoming a blocker in a way. And is there a smart way? I mean, you don't want the team to be really big in, in the get go, but is there a yeah. smart way to engage uh, these stakeholders to get this expedited a little bit? You can approach the problem from both ends. So first thing, I mean, starting as I have already, you know, at the user end of things, you you need to know who your users are. And, you know, as soon as you know your your users and you know that some of them are going to be using mobile phones, then the early design work, the early user experience work, you're going to have to do that on on mobile as well as on on desktop. You You know, you can't afford to leave mobile as like a day two thing if you know that that's what most of your users are going to be doing. And you know, we found in government digital that actually a surprisingly high proportion, you know, even, even, you know, I'm talking several years ago now, but even several years ago, an amazing proportion of, of business was conducted over, over mobile. You know, people applying for benefits, so people, you know, applying for apprenticeships, you know, they might be in the classroom where they're hiding their phone under the desk. And you get to you get to hear the stories and you get to learn how they how they use things. And just presenting stuff on the desktop would, would be a mistake. So that's from that end. You know, get get to know your users better. Have some different personas, and you know, have some recognize the different. There are multiple kinds of user, and so on, and make sure they're well represented in your thinking, and in your testing. And at the other end, you know, near the beginning of you know, when you're doing the beginning of anything big, it's important to get as many, you know, get everyone the right people in the room. You know, you need to work through what the end-to-end process looks like. All the touch points with the organization are. You know, how all the behind the scenes things that the customer doesn't see, how all of those going to be worked uh, and how 
you know, who needs to be involved in making sure that they work smoothly? You know, are there policy implications for an insurance company from a risk point of view, for example, for governments, you know, there were, you know, legal implications to some of the things that we did, you know, some, some wording was unacceptable, you know, for example, and there were, there were, there were times when in our work, we would get blocked on a policy decision had to be made by by someone from from legal or something like that. So we had to get a translation into into Welsh or whatever it might be. And you learn to get smart about it. You learn to recognise. You get a good smell for what's a piece of work that's likely to encounter one of these problems, and you make it extra visible. We use different coloured cards or different colour stickies to highlight things likely to have these different kinds of problems, and you start to manage them proactively. You don't start development on them until you've already had some of those conversations. And then if you've had those conversations in advance, then things tend to flow, nine times out of 10 will flow through development much more smoothly. Um, You can't get all of these things right 100% of the time, but if you keep making the same mistakes, that is stupid. (laughs) Um, So you, you have to learn. Learning hasn't happened until the process changes until the way you manage your work, the way you visualize your work, the way you prioritize your work, until there's that kind of change happening, you haven't really learned anything. You're just waiting for it to happen again. You know? So this learning process needs to be built into, into the delivery process as well. I'm totally with you. Uh, the only definition of a stupidity I wholeheartedly sign up to is doing the same thing, expecting different results. And <laughs> <Yes. laughs> I have to keep telling myself that. But some of the ways how Agile teams have dealt with, you know, visualization, you mentioned it comes natural to us. Can you tell me about those conceptually that is really coming out of Agile that is uh, really helpful yeah. for tackling? There's two, kind of two strands of Agile, you know, going, that are you know, pretty mainstream now, but the early part of the century were much, much newer. So you have Scrum. And, you know, its key idea is around iteration, using your two-week sprint or however long your sprint is as a container for some innovative work to happen. And at the end of those two weeks, out comes something amazing. You know, that's a really simple, beautifully, beautifully simple idea. And for the early parts of, of a project, you know, in thinking government, at the end of two weeks, having something worth demonstrating, that's amazing. <laughs> you know, so that, work, that, works, that works really well. Kanban comes more from a, um, you know, the idea of lean and flow and things like that. And, you know, making work visible using all the, and, and, you know, there's no one way of doing it, but using every trick you can think of to make your pain points visible is, you know, in the short term helps you manage those issues proactively. So in our case, where we had policy decisions to be made or language translations to be made, two pain points for us, we made those extra visible. But every organization has different pain points and you'll need different you know, visual, visual techniques to make your pain points visible. You get on top of them and then you think, well, how can we change the process so that these pain points don't bite us so often? Now, are there things that we are there conversations which should be happening earlier, which is a very common way of improving a process? Are there conversations which should be happening earlier that will preempt? these problems arriving arriving later and often very cheap solutions to what are quite painful and expensive problems if they occur late in the process. 
Bringing back to some of the uh, customer uh, experience, and I mean that by the end consumer actually experiencing the outcome of it. And I think sometimes it's getting something to test uh, at the end of two weeks versus making that work. I think there's a huge distance there as well. Get us there to that part where at the end of the day, when the end customer actually experience it how do how do we ensure and then then this whole feedback that to reiterate yes so i mean i'll go left to right the more conventional way just just to explain this so um you've got a, a feature idea that you want to develop and you know you're clear about the business objective the user objective the customer need that this feature is going to uh, going to address i mean if we don't have that then we shouldn't be doing the feature at all to make sure we all get all of that, actually, getting people into the room to actually make sure we understand the need, make sure this feature idea is the best way to meet that need. And then, you know, the, quite often it's the UX people that, that next take the lead on this. You know, what, what would this look like from a visual point of view and from an interaction design point of view? And you start to, um, first of all, on paper, when I say on paper, it might be on the screen, but, you know, it's not, not something that's functional. Get an idea of what the visually it looked like and the kind of journey that you would take the user through as they are using this this feature and then build a little prototype that you can actually test and in government digital we didn't just test it amongst ourselves do a demo to each other and say doesn't this look cool we would actually drag people off the street and say have a play what do you think imagine you had this need i'm going to give you this this system how would you try to meet that need using the system and you know, you're getting to see how usable your system is. You're getting to see how easily people can find the different things that your system offers and, and so on. Um, and you can do all of that without actually having written any you know, back-end services, no integration with the rest of the organization and so on. This is really quick and cheap to do. You can do multiple, if you've got a good UX um, d- d- developer, you can do multiple iterations even over the course of an evening. And I've seen this happen and it's great. It's very great fun to, uh, to, to do this. And then from that prototype, you do it properly. You know, you, you build out the, you know, the server side things, the, the integration with the organization that needs to happen. The prototype gets integrated with the back end or it gets rewritten or whatever's, whatever's appropriate with given the, you know, your technology constraints. And then typically, we might be careful about how we release it. So we might deploy the code to production, but you must, someone might have to flip a switch before anyone can actually see it. And you might make it available only to a small percentage of users or to some specific users if you ask to, you know, perhaps people you know that has this particular need and you ask them to try it out. And it's a way without incurring significant risk of getting quick and early feedback on on something you're not yet sure is ready for prime time, and then you've got you know with your ability to you know, build quickly and deploy quickly, if any refinements are needed, well you can quickly make them. That process end to end doesn't have to take long. I'm talking days, sometimes faster. You know, sometimes when something's super urgent, you know, you can you can you can do it in, in hours. And those feedback bits, you know, you might wait, you might perhaps some, some teams, for example, only release once per sprint. So it might take a couple of weeks before the next iteration gets to production. Other teams can do multiple deployments in a day if they want. And that's and that's that's great if they can do it. 
back to my digital days. I remember we we were um, one of our early releases. We delivered a bug, or we deployed a bug, and we were absolutely appalled. We were so embarrassed that we delivered a bug, and we fixed it the next day and sort of thought, "Phew." And then the feedback came back. This is amazing. <laughs> you fixed the bug in a day. I've never seen this before. You know, we're expect if for us normally it, to fix bugs takes takes months. You know, um, someone has to raise the bug. It has to go through a triage committee. It has to go through a prioritization committee. It has to get onto the project plan for the next, you know, the next quarter. You know, and you know, many months down the line, the you know the the, the, the uh, you know the bug fix goes out. Um, it it you know it doesn't have to be that way. And as I said before, if government can get this right, then there's no excuse for your organisation. <laughs> you're, you're setting on wrong uh, expectations too. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so at the same yeah. time, I mean that, that is a. Um, I, I don't mean to dwell in this, but I think it's important as this kind of practice goes mainstream, quote unquote. I think because the uh, traditional organizations are more used to having a control mechanism because it's coming from a different ethos, but it, it does turn out that it's not a bad idea to have both together. And uh, how would you think about in terms of uh, where is, I mean, this whole go with the piloting and, and testing and where are some of the smart places where these things should be more, you know, tempered but, with yeah, the control? Yeah, I wouldn't, I, I certainly don't underestimate the level of challenge there. I mean, you said, you know, everything I said sounded obvious, would be obvious to most people, but in fact, multiple generations of managers have been taught that the proper way to do something is to analyze, specify, build, release, and then see what happens. You know, and, you know, when you're against a, you know, a, a, a probably 40 year legacy of managers being taught that is what doing it properly looks like to get them to commit to a more iterative way of working is it, it really is a challenge. I, 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 I would never doubt it. And so then the question is, well, you know, if people can see logically that, yes, this iterative way of working, yes, I can see that it makes some sense. You know, I can understand that, yes, in some ways it's actually lower risk rather than higher risk. In some ways, the economics looks better and so on. You know, there is a logical case to make, but you've still got to overcome the fear that, you know, if we haven't properly designed this thing, then we've lost control. So where to start is definitely an important thing. I think starting with something where you know innovation is going to be necessary is probably the best place to do it. If you're already an organization that's trying to do something digital and that's not your comfort zone, then it's probably actually an ideal place to do it. But it does take some guts. You know, you would love to say, I'm going to spend this amount of money. It's going to take this amount of time. I'm going to choose the supplier and it's their problem. But I'm, you know, welcome to the real world. <laughs> You know, you can't, you know, it's, to offload all of the risk is very, very expensive. No supplier is going to guarantee the perfection within the deadline without also a huge budget to go with it. And even then there are no guarantees. So a more iterative approach is the way that most good suppliers will want to work on, on that kind of project. And that actually can help you. And that's again, that's how that's how the digital things works. You know, we, we put together some great digital teams based from suppliers that knew how to do it already. And we integrated experts from suppliers with people from the clients, from the, the government departments, for example. We built mixed teams 
left our badges at the door and we just started doing it. And yes, it takes some trust. It takes a little bit of courage. If you've got the right strategic goals in mind coming from the top, you know, if, 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 if your senior leadership understands that we need to innovate faster, that we need to collaborate better, we need to integrate with our customers better, we need to learn faster, all of these different things, then you can treat a project like that as actually a massive learning opportunity for the whole organisation. So I, I think there are, you know, I, I fully appreciate the, the fear that people feel, but, you know, they're going to have to do it sometime and they should go about it in the right way. And the, and the right way is to optimise it for learning, not just for the sake of the product, but for the sake of the organisation as a whole. And I think most of the success stories are where that has happened. That, that is really, it, it, sometimes it's just too obvious, but it, it just be <laughs> able to think that and capture that, I think it's yeah. really beneficial because a lot of times I, I see people looking at uh, as just kind of a baby step, the low hanging fruit kind of approach, mm. but you are in fact talking about you know, maybe you should just start with where the innovation is needed the most. Yes, I, I, I think 10 years ago, that's where I was as well. You know, um, baby steps, small changes, don't do anything that's going to upset anybody. And it will only take you so far. And the piece for me that was always missing was, you know, we need to have some serious conversations about what it is we want to achieve. And we need to get the right people in the room to have those conversations. You know, people that have you know the power to spend money, people with authority, um, people who are good at articulating what it is we eventually agree to go for, and also any people in the room who understand you know where you know where the pain points are, where the obstacles are going to be, people that know their customers, people that know the, the organization's technology, all of that. I always say at least three levels of seniority in the room, you know, people with authority and people with knowledge of what's really happening on, on the ground. That is the piece that is so often missing. You know, um, just choosing a, a solution based on an article you've read somewhere or based on a conversation with a salesman on the golf course, you know, that's a terrible way of achieving anything significant in your organisation. And by... Being open and honest about what's hard about it by being open and honest about obstacles, not just the ones that you're aware of, but being open to listening to what other people's obstacles are. That's a way of building trust. So you build trust and then you build a, a some idea of where it is you'd like to get to and some of the signs that you're winning along the way. And it's all articulated in your own words. It's organized coherently into something that's beginning to look like a strategy. Well, that's exciting, <laughs> you know, and, you know, facilitating that is now, that's now what, that's now what I'm about. You know, I, I've, I tell people I've dedicated the rest of my career to outcomes, you know, and it's, it's actually about those conversations. It's not about, you know, 10% more for 5% less. It's about outcomes that mean something to people that help them. It's outcomes that are realized when their own struggles are overcome, when their customers' struggles are o o overcome. And the organization is achieving something really great. Um, you can't do that just with process. You know, we, you know, we've got to do more than that. We've got to do better, as I, as I keep saying. That, that kind of comes back to, you know, the whole notion of North Star in a way. Yeah. So one, one of the tricks we have in our toolbox is the I do pattern. It's a way of taking a true North or a North Star, whatever you like, that might actually be 
come from the facilitator, but what you're not doing is selling that to the organization. You just give them a chance to imagine what it would be like and then put it into their own words. And the way we put it in their words is the I do pattern, ideal obstacles outcomes. What would it be like if we had this? What obstacles are in the way? And what outcomes would we achieve if we found a way to overcome those obstacles? And then what happens? Then what happens? And, and then now every time we ask then what happens, we are articulating things that are of increasingly aspirational for that organization. And we're getting further away from the original, you know, thing that the facilitator might have might have provided. That works at a high level. We've got some various high level statements that we use to start those conversations. You can work at a low level as well. You can use things like assessments and use the, if, if it's a, a really well-crafted assessment, each of the prompts in the assessment can in itself be an inspiring statement that you can have these conversations around. And people prioritize themselves which assessment prompts they want to focus on, you know, and then from there, what problem area is this highlighting? And what would it look like if we did something really great here? It's such an easy pattern. When, it, when it's explained to you, it's kind of obvious. And it's a really easy and great way to get away from just thinking, you know, going with the first solution that you thought of, which is almost always a mistake. Even if it's the right solution, it's a mistake, but you need to have those conversations first. Thanks again to Mike Burroughs for joining us today. Don't forget to tune in to our next episode for the conclusion of our conversation with Mike. You can find out more about Mike at agendashift.com. To find out more about Gene and Tintech, visit tintech.com. Make sure to subscribe to Mobile Interactions Now in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. On behalf of the team here at Tintech, thanks for listening.